This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. We'll take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Some of you, I was wondering where you were in the first service, and you showed up in this one. It's almost like there was a time change or something. So it's, either way, it's good to see you. I'm glad you came to church today. Uh, As we transition into Hebrews 13, this last chapter of the book of Hebrews, we come to really an important transition, and it is a clear transition Because Hebrews 13 feels different than any other chapter in the book. There's a lot of practical application in Hebrews 13, which we haven't gotten much of in the previous chapters of Hebrews. If you've been with us over the past few months as we walk through this book, we have walked through some very difficult but very important and weighty and heavy theological doctrine. We have looked at some very, very difficult but important truths. And I love to be able to preach those, and I love that you're willing to receive those. It's something I love about Prince, and so we need to walk through those things. But as we go to chapter 13, we'll notice it feels completely different. So much so that in the past, people have wondered whether it fits or not. Some have wondered if maybe this chapter was a later edition that someone wrote chapters 1 through 12 and then later someone added chapter 13. There's absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that. This is one letter written to one audience and has one unifying theme. And the transition there shouldn't surprise us because this is a normal transition in New Testament letters. You see it in the book of Romans. Romans 1 through 11, deep theological truth. And then you turn to chapter 12 and it says, therefore, based upon everything that we have heard, here is the way we are to live in Romans 12 through 16. You see it in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 3, almost no commands whatsoever. It's identity in Christ and what Christ has done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then starting in chapter 4, 5, and 6, over 40 commands given. So no commands and then just command, command, command. And that's exactly what the book of Hebrews does. Chapters 1 through 11, deep theological truth. Chapter 12 feels like a bit of exhortation. And then chapter 13 transitions to application. And that transition is important for us. You see, there's not just meaning in the words of Scripture. There is meaning in the structure of Scripture. And what we learn from that structure is that what we believe should form how we live. What we believe forms how we live. There should not be in the life of a believer a disconnect between what you believe and how you live. And it does feel like often in a church, there's kind of a a little bit of tension between the believers and the doers. You know, we need less Bible studies and more action. But those things are not in conflict with one another. God wants us to think deeply and rightly about him. God wants us to move on from the milk of the word and get into the meat of the word. And his intention is that as we come to know him and as we think deeply about him and as we have our mind formed by the truth of God's word, that the result of that is it changes the way in which we live. 
So a type of doctrine or theology that does not lead to life change is not right truth. God's real truth leads us to a change in life. And I think about how Romans chapter 12 says this, that it is a transformed mind, a mind transformed by the truth of God's word that leads to a life of worship, a life that is pleasing to the Lord, a life in which Christ is magnified and glorified, beginning with a transformed mind. And so what Hebrews is doing here in chapter 13 is saying, now that we have understood the things of God more correctly, here's the way in which we are to live. And so these verses, these first six verses have five commands, just one after another. There's one in verse one, one in verse two, in verse three, in verse four, and then one in verses five and six. And they do seem a bit disconnected. You'll, you'll notice this as we walk through them. Uh, one is going to sound very different than the other, but they're really not disconnected at all. They're connected by many things, but the primary thing that connects these verses and these commands together is the last verse of chapter 12. So look above chapter 13 at that last verse, in verse 28 and 29. It says this, Therefore, based upon all of this truth, based upon the fact that we have a great high priest, based upon the new covenant, based upon the fact that we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, therefore, let us be grateful. Let's be grateful. Let's be thankful for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Everything else is going to be shaken, and the only thing that will remain is Christ and his kingdom. And then let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. So we talked about this last week, but chapter 13 is really an answer to that phrase, acceptable worship. So the life of a believer who has encountered Jesus Christ, who is walking with Jesus Christ, should be one who is living a life of worship. And what does acceptable worship look like? What is the kind of worship that pleases the Lord, that honors the Lord? Well, the answer is, in much degree, Hebrews 13. Acceptable worship does not just look like coming to a place of worship and singing songs of worship and listening to a sermon of worship. Acceptable worship looks like the life that we live formed by what God is doing inside of our hearts. That's what's connecting these things. And so let's look at these five commands together. If you're there in Hebrews 13, say amen. And listen as I read these. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So in a desire to, to understand the outward life of someone who has come to Christ and what acceptable worship looks like, let's look at those five different commands. The first one is this, love your church family. 
love your church family. That's verse one. It says, let brotherly love continue. The word brotherly there is a word that means brothers and sisters. It is a, a call to love the family of God. And we are, we are a family church. Jesus is the only true son of God. But Jesus has given his life that we might be adopted into the family of God and might be brought into a right relationship with God the Father because we are now, through Christ, joint heirs with Jesus. So the blessings that should only belong to Jesus and the inheritance that should only belong to Jesus now belong to, to us because we've been adopted into the family of God. Read Ephesians 1. It'll talk a lot about that. It's an amazing thought. That Jesus Christ has come to adopt us, to make us right with the heavenly father. And so he has. And in so doing, he's united us to each other. He's given us a family. Hebrews 2 says this. Jesus, think about this, is not ashamed to call us his brothers. That's an amazing thought. So he, he didn't look at us in the way in which we live and say, well, I don't know that guy. No, I don't know her. No, Jesus says, if you're a believer, then he's not ashamed to call you his brother. He's inviting you into the family and he has brought you into the family. And so every believer is a part of the family of God. Now, it's amazing how if you travel around the world or maybe even just go to a different church, it's amazing how you can come in contact with someone and feel just a kindred spirit with them. Those of you who've been overseas understand this. I have experienced this in so many different contexts. I've experienced it in an open-air meeting in, in Africa. I've experienced it in a home church in China. I've experienced it in magnificent cathedrals in Europe. All over the world, I have walked into places and I've met someone. And in just a few brief minutes, I have sensed in them a kindred spirit. And what that is, is that the spirit of God in them is resonating with the spirit of God in me. And I realize that here I am across the world with a brother or a sister in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. And the beauty of heaven is that all of those from all eternity will be gathered together and we will rejoice in that. But, but it's really important you understand this correctly. Yes, it is true that every believer in all of the world is a part of the family of God, but it is always God's intention to manifest the family through the ministry of a local church. The place in which the body of Christ comes together to accomplish the work of Christ is in a local body of believers. The place in which the bride of Christ is treasured and valued and honored is in the context of a local church. So it's not enough to be a part of the universal church. Every believer must be part of a local church in which the family of Christ is displayed. This is where we come to understand that. This is where this is demonstrated to the world. People often ask me why we take membership at Prince so seriously. It does matter to us. And someone will often say, well, can you give me one verse that says I have to be a member of a church? And, and to be honest with you, I can't give you a, first, a verse that says thou must be a member of a church. I don't have one of those. But I got about 50 verses that show God's expectation for you to be in a church because there's things you just can't do unless you're a member of a local church. The reality is 
How are you going to love the family if no one knows you're a part of the family? And if, and if you don't know that you're a part of the family, there has to be a place in which you know this is the family of God. And God has created local churches all over the world so that we might learn in those contexts how to do exactly what this verse is saying. And that is love your church family. This is not a, a feeling, by the way. So I say, well, yeah, I love I love the church family. I, I love coming to church. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's, it's talking about the action of love. Knowing people. Caring for people. Engaging in relationships with people. Sacrificing for people. Serving one another. It is, the, it is the one another commands manifested in the context of the local church. The command here is that you must find a local church and be committed to that local church where they know you're a part and you know that you're a part. And in that context, you give yourself to the people of that church. And let me just be really clear here. I, I say this often. There are a lot of good churches in our area. You don't have to be a member of Prince Avenue, but you have to find a church, be committed to it, and love that church family. Know them. Engage in relationships, which means, by the way, there has to be something more than coming on a Sunday morning. There has to be some place in which you're getting to know people, you're engaging in a community group, in a discipleship group, in some context where you're knowing them and actively and specifically and sacrificially loving them. Many of us have been reading that Paul Miller book on Love Walked Among Us and how to learn to love like Jesus and one of the rather discouraging things about learning to love like Jesus is that he continues to emphasize that true love is never efficient. It always takes time and it takes energy and it takes sacrifice and it takes serving. If you're really going to love somebody, it's going to cost you something. If Jesus taught us anything about love, it's that love cost. And so what it says here is be willing to pay the price to engage in loving relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, God has made you a part of a family so that in that context, you might learn how to love. And that does demand more from you than just attendance. It demands engaging and knowing and asking and then acting on people's behalf. So he says this idea of acceptable worship begins with loving your church family. But the second command is completely different than that. <laughs> The second command is be kind to everyone. That's the second one, be kind to everyone. I get that from verse two. So do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So verse one is in the context of people you know. People that you've gotten to know because you've engaged yourself in the life of a local church and you know they're a brother, you know they're a sister. And you're stepping into their lives to love them and protect them and care for them and, and minister to them in any way that you need to. So this is, this is family. Then the next verse goes to strangers. People that you don't know. People whose name you don't know. People whose situation and context you don't fully understand. But it's saying in the midst of your love for the church, it says this, do not neglect this. Now those are important words because what it's saying is it is possible that you might be so committed, some of you, to loving the church. You're in, you're engaged that you might also forget to be kind to those you don't know, to demonstrate some of that care to those outside of the church. Now, it's super messy in here. Like you get involved in, in our lives, we've got junk, okay? We've got dysfunction. 
You look like you're put together, but I know you and I know me. So the call to love me, this comes with challenges. My wife is home with a sick child this morning. She would have amen right there. Like this is, it's difficult to do this, but this seems to be even more difficult stepping in and engaging in the life of a, of a stranger. Now, what it says here is that we are to show hospitality to strangers. And look at this, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I have no idea what to say about that except exactly what it says. I got nothing for you. I know throughout the Old Testament, Judges 13 and other places, Manoah was uh, a man, the father of, of Samson, who uh, was visited by an angel and given a word for God. We have a lot of episodes in the Old Testament where an angel came and ministered to someone. But I, I honestly don't know what to say to you except the fact that this says that there could be times in which you show love to an absolute stranger and then maybe find out or never find out that it was an angel unawares. That's an unbelievable thought. So that's it. I got nothing. It's just true. It just happens, I guess. All right. Pretty neat. Maybe it's to motivate us to, to invest maybe a little bit more into strangers. But the context here was that in the first century, when people were traveling from town to town, there weren't hotels. And if there were kind of places to stay like that, they were shady and you wouldn't want to be seen going into them. And so in the Jewish context, it was customary to see a stranger in town, invite them to come and stay at your house, to wash their feet, to give them a place to stay, to feed them and to love them in the name of Jesus Christ, you welcome them into your house. We see this a lot in first century culture. We see this a lot in the New Testament. And so what it was saying is, listen, you have no idea who's coming in, but if you see a stranger, you show hospitality, invite them in, serve them, love them in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, given our context, I, I'm not sure there's a direct correlation between what they were doing and what we're supposed to do. I think this may fall into the category of things that our parents let us do that we won't let our kids do. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not totally positive about just seeing a stranger and inviting them to stay at your house. I think it's great. I don't know. That's not exactly what I'm saying to you. But what I am saying is this. At the very least, listen, at the very least, it looks something like the Good Samaritan. At the very least, it is seeing a stranger in need. And stopping in the midst of your busy life and taking care of the need in a way that costs you something. At the least, that's what it means. It may mean to invite people into the home, even in this context. I'm just telling you, it at least means to see strangers in need and meet the need. It at least looks like Titus 3, 2, which shows this, says this, show perfect courtesy to all people. Perfect courtesy to all people. Be courteous to everyone. Minister to everyone. It says this in Galatians 6.10. As you have opportunity, do good to all people. It is showing kindness to strangers. Why? Because every stranger is an image bearer of God. Every stranger was created by God. Every stranger matters to God. Every stranger is loved by God. And the call for us is on a regular basis to be aware of the needs around us, which demands we not be so consumed, so busy, so tight in our schedule that we don't have room for a stranger. It's saying, see strangers, engage with them, love them and minister to them and be kind to them in some way. It's an incredible thought. My dad was great at this. 
And uh, at his funeral a few years ago, we told a bunch of stories, and I've got a, I've got a bunch of stories. He just, he loved to do this, and I don't know if it's because he knew this verse, or this is just something he loved to do, but he grew up with nothing, and then worked really hard, and the Lord blessed him, and as a result, he was just constantly giving. One of the stories we told at his funeral, I told, is that um, he was in the grocery store, it's just about a year before he died, and he saw a mom and a little boy, and the little boy asked for certain apples, and the mom said, no, we don't get those apples. And the boy said, why? And the mom said, because those are Honeycrisp apples and they're too expensive and we don't get those, we get other apples. So my dad just kind of overheard this conversation. He then went and found the biggest bag he could possibly find, filled it with Honeycrisp apples, went to the checkout, bought all the apples, went back and gave them to the family and then continued to shop. He did stuff like that all of the time. We told story after story after story of those kind of things. You know what that is? It's, it's showing kindness to a stranger. It's stepping in and loving a stranger. It's seeing a need, engaging in the need, meeting the need, and taking that struggle upon yourself. It's exactly what this verse is saying. And so it begins with this love of the brothers and sisters in Christ, and then goes outside of the walls and say, it's great that you've loved this morning from 1045 to 1130, but as you leave, look for a stranger. If you see a need, meet the need. The third command is in verse 3. It is this, have sympathy for the suffering. Have sympathy for the suffering. So we are kind of moving from just the church family a little bit out to the strangers and then in all of that context, and I think maybe even specifically to the brothers and sisters, anyone who is suffering. It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, it's important that verse 2 begins with do not neglect and verse 3, remember. Because listen, none of these activities are natural for any of us. So I don't want you to leave going, well, yeah, your dad must have had some kind of gift for like seeing people's needs. It's not a matter of gifting. You can't say, well, I took a spiritual gifts test and kindness didn't come out. I'm more of a prophet. I like to tell people where they're wrong. All right. I'm sorry. You say, well, hospitality's not really my thing. Well, it has to be your thing. Kindness has to be your thing. Love for brothers and sisters has to be your thing. Could it come more naturally for some than others? Yes, but it's still gotta be your thing. And it's gotta be my thing. And this is why it says, hey, hey wait, wait. Don't neglect strangers. Wait, wait, wait. Remember the suffering. Because every one of us tends to constantly be so focused on ourselves and our needs and our difficulties, it is often very, very difficult to stop long enough to engage in the needs of someone else, whether in the church or outside of the church. And so to make that point even more clear, it says this, hey, remember those who are in prison. And by the way, they were doing this. Chapter 10 says that many of them had been imprisoned and they had showed sympathy for those in prison. So in a first century prison, uh, you didn't get three meals a day in craft time. The only way that you got food is because someone brought it to you. But that's dangerous because if someone was in prison for being a Christian and you brought them food, you were saying you were a Christian too. So it was dangerous to bring someone food. And the result, the, the, the reality is, is that in the midst of all the suffering they were going through, it'd just be very easy to think about their own needs and forget about those who are in prison. So it's saying, listen, there's people in the church that are suffering and they need you. And I'm pleading with you to remember them, engage with them, take their troubles upon yourself. 
It's probably about 10 years ago in which God really convicted me with Romans 12, 15. It's really been a kind of a forming principle for me as a pastor. It says this, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, let me tell you the day that God used that verse to convict me. However many years ago, it was on Mother's Day. Mother's Day is an odd day, I think, particularly in a church because you have people in the church, ladies in the church who are mothers and they're excited about being a mother and they're thankful for being a mother. And so they're getting celebrated that day. But there's also in the church, single ladies who wanna be a mother, but haven't been. There's ladies who are married that have struggled with infertility issues. For some, day, for some people, Mother's Day is an extremely hard day. For some, it's a day of great rejoicing. And so what do we do on a day like that? You know what we do? We do Romans 12, 15. We weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And so those who don't have children, you know what they're called to do? Rejoice with those who do. And those who do are called to weep with those who don't. And it's the most amazing thing because everything in us wants us to say, you should be weeping with me. You should be rejoicing with me. But it says to do the opposite. Instead of expecting others to weep for you, you rejoice for them. Everything in us goes in the opposite direction. And we start to begin kind of to see a common theme throughout these first three commands that everything about this is counterintuitive for us. That you cannot follow these three commands if you're thinking about yourself. It is the selfless, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ being displayed through someone who has experienced it from Christ himself. And it's saying, recognize that there are those among you who are suffering because it says they are in the body. If one part of the body is suffering, the whole body is suffering. If one part is hurting, the whole body is hurting. So it means to take someone else's burden upon you and treat it like it's your own. It's Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you want to fulfill the law, if you want to fulfill the commandments of Christ, well, bear someone's burden. Take it upon yourself. It's heavy for them. Step in and take some of it yourself. And when every one of us has our own burdens and every one of us kind of wake up in the morning feeling like we've got enough in ourselves, it's often hard to step in and take someone else's, but that's, that's the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. We take a burden. And so we love our church family. We be kind to everyone. We have sympathy for the suffering. The fourth one is to walk in moral purity. The fourth command, walk in moral purity. That's verse four. It says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now in the Greek language, when it wants to put emphasis on something, it puts the emphatic word at the beginning. And in the Greek, the emphatic word is the word there, honor. And so it begins with the word honor, a word that means to highly prize, to, to deeply value, to hold in highest regard, to esteem something as valuable. It is the exact word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1.19. Listen, when he talks about the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that word precious is the same word here, honor. It's something incredibly valuable. It is something that we honor. It's something we rejoiced in this morning. It's something we hold up to the highest honor, the highest degree. It says in that same way, marriage should be held up to the highest honor. It is given honor. It is displayed as highly prized and deeply valuable to you. 
that we don't take marriage lightly. We're not casual with it. We don't think of it insignificantly because it matters to God. Now, what this means is that a low view of marriage, a cynical view of marriage is not new to our day. I get bothered when, when preachers try to talk about like what we're in experiencing has never been experienced before. There is nothing new under the sun and everything that you're experiencing or we experience, you can find in here somewhere. I promise, even personally, everything you're going through, someone here has gone through it. And so even in the first century, there were those who had a low view of marriage, a cynical view of marriage. And what he was saying is marriage should be held in high regard. Why? Because it was created to display the gospel. It exists for the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you're casual with marriage and nonchalant with marriage, it's being casual with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of you have been in situations where outside of your control, your marriage has fallen apart. And certainly the Lord understands that. And God gives grace for all of those things. But listen, if you are married, if you are unmarried, the command is this. Hold marriage in high regard. It matters because God created it and it exists to point to him. One of the things I often say at weddings is I say to the couple that are standing there and they're not listening, they don't care. It's, it's ridiculous to even preach at weddings because they, have, they don't remember anything you say. I'm looking at some of you, I did your wedding. I'm looking at you, you don't remember anything I said, but let me tell you right now what I said. I said, your marriage is like this ma massive canvas. And it's blank when you get married. And if each one of you will fulfill your roles according to the roles of marriage, if a husband will do what he's supposed to do and a wife will do what she's supposed to do, you know what happens is that God begins to paint this beautiful picture for the world to see. And the picture is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. But he doesn't leave it right there. He says, let marriage be held in honor. But then he says this, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I think the reason he says this is because a low view of marriage often leads to a low view of moral purity. If you don't value marriage, you're not going to value moral purity. Now listen, I'm, I know I'm the guy who, who felt a strong conviction that all the kids needed to be in the room on Sunday morning. I still believe that, okay? And then you get to a text like this. So here's the deal. Uh, I, I need to say some things about this text and I'm gonna use a metaphor. For those who you understand the metaphor, praise God. For those of you who don't, ask mom and dad. All right. <laughs> I'm gonna use the metaphor of, of fire, okay? I'm gonna use the metaphor of fire because God has created us with great and strong passions. And even in the issue of, of, of sexuality and morality, he's made us people of strong passions. And these passions in many ways are given by God. And like fire, when those passions are controlled and in the right context, they are absolutely beautiful. So when the fire is in the fireplace, it's a beautiful thing. When the fire is in a fire pit, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It was created for that context of marriage. When the fire is uncontrolled and in the wrong context, it is disastrous. When there's a fire in the car engine, that's a bad thing. When there's a fire that comes out of the fireplace into the house, that's a bad thing. When there's a fire in the forest, it's a, it's a bad thing. One of my closest friends who I graduated high school with, I still keep in touch with, lives in Atlanta. 
This last fall, his wife decided to go take a nap on the outside furniture in a screened-in porch. And the kind of wind was blowing, beautiful, crisp day. And so she lit a candle, you know, just to set the ambiance of the nap time. Somehow, the wind blew and a little spark came out of that candle. And it landed on the outdoor furniture, which apparently is sprayed with so much stuff in order to keep it uh, water repellent that apparently it's fairly combustible. And it caught on fire. She immediately noticed it, got her husband. He had a fire extinguisher. He began to work on it. Within 30 minutes, their entire three-story house was gone. Now, the fire in the right context is beautiful. Right there in the candle, creating the atmosphere. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. When that fire gets outside of that place, it is a dangerous thing. And so, listen, this is a message for those who are married and those who are unmarried. To the married, the message is this. Marriage is the fireplace, right? And in that context, it should burn and it should burn strongly. This is a command from the Lord, all right? In that context, that fire should burn. It shouldn't burn alone, not with anyone else, not in secret, in one place with one person in the context of a marriage. To the unmarried, because that fire is so hard to contain, the real admonition to you, and listen, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like a Puritan here, but I'm just telling you the word of God. Because that fire is so hard to contain before you're married, it's best to not even get close. And this is exactly why Song of Solomon 8.4 says, do not awaken love before it's time. Because once love is awakened, it's really, really difficult to put it back to sleep. Changing metaphors here. You start playing with the fire and the reality is the fire will end up burning you. It's really, really difficult to contain the fire. And so here's my point, all right? Taking all of that, here's what I'm gonna say to you. It's my summary. Keep the fire in the fireplace and keep the home fires burning. Stick that on a piece of reclaimed wood and put it in your bedroom, all right? <laughs> That'll sell right there, I promise you. Keep the fire in the fireplace and keep the home fires burning. Those of you who understand the metaphor, if you understand, say amen. amen. That's it. Keep the fire in the fireplace. Keep the home fires burning. All God's people said, amen. Now let me say something here. I know uh, joking around a little bit about this, but listen. This is an area in which culturally um, we don't take very seriously. I'm serious. We don't take it seriously. We don't take marriage very seriously and we certainly don't take moral purity very seriously. But God does. Because it says there, for, why should you let the marriage bed be undefiled? Nothing else in there. Why is that to be the place in the context? Because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Kind of like I did with, with verse two, I'm just gonna leave that there. It just brings a little bit of sobriety into something that we take lightly. God is not taking this issue lightly. And when we do things God way, it's the right way, it's the best way. When we choose to ignore God's commands, it always leads to dysfunction. Look at that final command in verse five. The final one is be content with what you have. 
final command to be content with what you have. Verses five through six say this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Look at that phrase. I, I just, all week, I just can't stop thinking about that phrase right there. Be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, so he says this. Do you see that? He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So let me just summarize this quickly. The God who saved you has brought you into his family and made an eternal commitment to you. He is for you. And he has promised that he will take care of every need that you have. He will give you exactly what you need, the exact amount that you need, exactly the right time that you need it. And the reason he quotes two Old Testament texts here to remind us of the promises of God is to remind us that God is for you. He will help you. And there will never be a time in which you need something that God does not give you. You may not have everything you want, but I can tell you confidently on the promises of God, you will have everything that you need. And so what he's saying is this, is Matthew 6, says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. What he says is this, you seek the kingdom, you seek Christ, make him your ambition. And as you do, God will ensure that everything you need is taken care of you. But if instead of that, you begin to fall into the love of money, and you're discontent with what you have, and so you begin to seek other things, the result will be you cannot then seek the kingdom of God because you can't love God and money. And so if you begin to be obsessed with money and obsessed with the things of the world, it will steal your heart and affection away from Christ. So instead it says this, trust God's provision, trust God's timing, seek first the kingdom, and let him take care of every need that you have. That's what he's saying. My goodness, I'll just tell you right there, that one little phrase, so simple, and we just kind of blow over it. Be content with what you have. What a countercultural idea. And let me say this as we kind of put these all things together. The entire book of Hebrews up to this point has been leading us and inviting us into this new covenant relationship with Jesus, this real internal spirit-fueled, spirit-filled, life-giving, dynamic, moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus that is real and transformative. It is the very God of the universe coming to dwell inside of us. He is awakening our soul. He is putting a passion in our soul for him. And all of Hebrews up till now is leading us into that. It's saying, trust Jesus, give your life to Jesus. Let Jesus take control, trust and follow him because he will transform you from the inside out. And we get to chapter 13 and it says this. If everything so far has been about God's work in you, this right now is about God's work through you. This is about the way in which we live in response to what God has done for us. This is the gospel, not just internal, but the gospel external. And listen, it's not a matter of giftings. And it's, it, I gotta be, it's not, it's not just this idea that as I walk with Jesus, these things are gonna naturally flow from me. No, it's putting effort into walking like a follower of Jesus Christ. 
It is in recognition of what God has done for you, choosing to walk out of here and love the brothers and sisters, be kind to strangers, engage in someone's suffering, protect the purity of another person, seek first the kingdom of God and be content with what you have. And you do that through spirit-fueled effort. You seek to live this way for the glory of God, for the advancement of his kingdom, for the display of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And if Christianity is, is you saying, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to follow Jesus, wherever you lead me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow you, then listen, this is it. This is what it looks like. Following Jesus looks a lot like this. It looks a lot like experiencing the love, the purity, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and then displaying it to everyone you come in contact with so that Christ is exalted through you as you follow him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.